Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, June 9, 2016. This is episode 1804 of the Survival Podcast. And since this is Thursday, it's a listener call show. I've got seven calls on deck for you guys today. We're going to talk about something weird showing up in your home, brew because an airlock failed. And what do you do now? We're going to talk about when you don't want to be a hero. Kind of really sad call and a really salient point that we all need to think about because many of us uh, are the sheepdog type. And there's a time to be a sheepdog and then there's time to uh, understand that even sheepdogs know that when you're being lured away from your flock, it might be a trap. Next up, uh, what about keeping those guns around your house and keeping your kids safe at the same time? How do we do that? What are some thoughts on that? And that's a big it depends, as you'll see when we get to it. Uh, thoughts on buying a mower for the homestead. Uh, you know, once you get a little bit bigger piece of land, even if you have livestock, there's times you got to mow. And pushing a lawnmower across an acre is a tough, tough job. Three acres, forget about it. Forget about it. I had a one-acre property in Pennsylvania that occasionally I had to mow uh, if, there, if I didn't have someone to do it for me uh, with a push mower. And it was an all-day job. So... We start looking at tractors and lawn tractors and stuff like that. Just some thoughts on that. We also have the difference between draft dodging and conscientious objections. Jake called in with a call on that in regards to Muhammad Ali. I think it's an interesting one. We won't spend much time on it, but it is a very valid point. We're going to talk about food rotation with your long-term storables today. And we're going to talk about comparing the children of the uber-rich to the teacup kids in general. And... Uh, being careful that we're not the pot calling the kettle black sometimes as well. Before we do all of that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Hey guys, the next time you consider investing in firearms, consider investing in yourself first by taking a course with Fortress Defense Consultants. From basic to advanced courses and even specialized courses for women, Fortress Defense has it all. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I've got two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have the Haitian Massacre and Ethnic Cleansing. I have the And the Philadelphia is Burning. No, the Philadelphia, not Philadelphia the city. In other news, Aaron Burr kills Alexander Hamilton in the duel, and uh, it's the end of both of them politically, one in the ground and the other, well, politically in the ground. And the Lewis and, Cl Lewis and Clark expedition sets out this year, 1804, on its epic journey after buying half a continent. Thomas Jefferson figures, well, I better figure out what I bought. Send some guys out to find out what it is. A big old piece of land. Anyway, I'm going to read the Philadelphia's Burning. The first Barbary War has a minimalist effort Uh, by Thomas Jefferson to avoid foreign entanglements while protecting U.S. shipping in the Mediterranean from the Barbary pirates. Last year, the frigate USS Philadelphia was sent of a part of a blockade of the port of Tripoli. Unfortunately, she hit an uncharted reef and was captured along with her crew of 305. This has become an embarrassment, 
So the USS Intrepid is fitted with sails to look like a local merchant ship and glides into Tripoli Harbor at night, declaring an emergency after being damaged in a storm. Yes, they have someone who speaks Arabic. Before the light of dawn, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur and several Marines board the Philadelphia in an attempt to retake her, or if that fails, to set her aflame. Within ten minutes, the Philadelphia is theirs, but is severely damaged and cannot be towed. Decatur and his men set several fires in an abandoned ship. The Philadelphia starts to drift. Its cannons loaded with shot are so hot they fire into the town. Everyone is awake now. The Intrepid escapes to sea as its sister ship. The Seren lays down cover fire. It is a bold action praised by all of those, except those in Tripoli. Lieutenant Decatur is a national hero. My take by Alex Strug. If you ever wondered how conflict between the United States and the Middle East ever got started, it goes back to 1776 when America declared its independence. Great Britain stopped paying tribute to the pirates for American shipping. The pirates interdicted, uh, interdict, interdicted with American shipping, taking cargo and captives, making them into slaves. White women were especially treasured as concubines and fetched a good price. The USA started paying a tribute, but it became such a large part of the budget it was cheaper and more manly to build a whole navy to fight the pirates. In fact, one of the reasons for the establishing a constitution was to collect money to build a navy so America could go over there and kick their backsides. Thomas Jefferson wanted to minimize that effort to save money and pay down the debt. If you follow Jefferson closely, you will find that his actions and principles are often in conflict. He's not a fool. He knows reality, but at times he finds himself traveling two mules going in opposite directions. Yeah. Um... My thought, though, is you don't pay tyrants. You don't pay thieves. You don't do it. And I think many of us would say, yeah, that's, that's right. You, know, you don't make deals with criminals. Unfortunately, we have been tricked into making legal deals with criminals on a daily basis. We, we call those taxes. Everything that we do in our society today that's productive is taxed. We are literally punished for being productive. We are punished for being successful. If you make an income, they tax it. If you build a successful company, they tax it. If you own property, they tax the property when you acquire it. And then they often tax property, especially real property, just for you holding it and maintaining it. <sighs> the more things change, the more they stay the same and change again. I don't know. Uh, sometimes you just realize the society that we live in is nothing like the one that it was intended to be when it was founded. And you wonder why people like me end up all the way to the far end of the spectrum as an anarchist. I think what we realize as we look back and actually study history is the reason the, reason the United States has become one of the most oppressive police states on the planet and one of the most taxed people on the planet is because we started out with such a minimalist government. That gave us so much success that it gave the government, even with limited taxation, so much revenue that it was able to build itself into the monstrosity that it is. And governments only ever want to build themselves in one direction, onward and upward. I'd like to throw out a challenge for you. In the last 30 years, give me a department of government that was eliminated. Not that was folded into another department, not that became a new department. That We actually said, you know what, we just don't need that anymore. And that would mean that in the last three decades, government hasn't successfully done anything well enough to solve a problem to the point where we didn't need more than we did before we started trying to solve the problem. 
The more things change, the more they indeed stay the same. With that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. These are calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK is the number. Call that number. Leave your message or make your point. Be brief, direct, and to the point. Make your question or your point right up front. And then give me your details. You'll be more likely to get on the air. Make sure you do have some bars on your cell phone. Make sure you're in a quiet area. And uh, follow that blueprint, and you'll be more likely to get on the air. With that, let's go ahead and take first call of the day. Hey, Jack. Uh, Nick here with a homebrew question. Um, I've left my out for um, uh, over a month now. The rubber balloons have dried out and split open. Um, the fermentation was complete, and they've been racked once. Uh, now there's a little bit of uh, a white film on top of the the cider. I was wondering if that was an issue or if I should just rock around it and bottle as uh, as usual. Um, there's no off smell or anything to it. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Well, there's kind of two things going on here. One, we got something going voodoo in the homebrew, and what do we do about it? And two, how did it happen? Well, it happened because, as often happens when you're homebrewing, especially once you get into that, you've done the secondary fermentation and you've racked it off and you're letting it clear and age out. Um, you know, the first couple batches you make, you're in there checking it every day. Ooh, I can't wait to get it in a bottle and taste it. And, you know, after you've made a bunch, you, you, you kind of realize, hey, it's just, one of the things I do now. It makes me think, yesterday I just bottled seven gallons of mead, and it was an all-day thing because you let yourself get behind, you got all this stuff sitting out there, and bottling is the bottleneck. So it's easy to let things happen, like balloons, if you're using them, um, you know, fail just because they get dry rot or whatever, and airlocks dry out. This is why I am a totally okay with using balloons in your primary fermentation, But I think when you go over to secondary fermentation, you should switch to a, a proper airlock. I really do. I think it just makes a lot more sense. And it's also a reason that I'm a much bigger fan of the S-style airlocks versus the three-piece airlocks. Because if there's any water at all in the S airlock, it is going to still seal. But in the three-piece, if it goes, and you might not notice it, if it goes down below the level of the, the, the third piece in the center... Now you can get air in, and it does happen. But is this a big deal? No. Um, remember, when you're doing fermentation of your beverages, assuming you've actually fermented the beverage, it's actually gone through fermentation, you're, you're not going to kill yourself, and you're not going to make yourself sick because nothing that can harm you can live in there due to the acidity, the alcohol level. Those two things move that beverage into basically a storable. That's, that's what fermentation, making alcoholic beverages, is. We're taking something non-storable, apple juice or, or barley wash, right? And we're making it into something that can be stored for quite a long time. Now, if you leave it exposed to the air, it can oxidize, it can go to vinegar. There's all kinds of bad things that can happen to it. But if it doesn't smell bad, it probably isn't bad. It might not be quite the quality it would have been if you didn't screw it up, but it's probably fine. Could you just rack this and bottle it? Sure. What would I do? Personally, I would get another vessel, I would rack into it, I'd put a proper airlock on it, I would give it a couple days, and then I would bottle it. And I'll give you a little piece of advice you can follow if you have the ability to do it. 
If you can rack into a vessel, and when you're only going to do it for a day or two, if you can put it somewhere that's right where you're going to bottle or right where at least you can rack out of it, which when we say rack, we mean just siphon it out of one vessel into another. That way, whatever settles out in it, you're not carrying the sloshing container through your house stirring the bottom up. All right. This is another reason I like one-gallon batches, because you can carry a one-gallon batch from one room to the other without sloshing around. Carrying five, six-gallon carboys, you're going to slosh stuff around and stir up that sediment. So a lot of times when I have a large batch, what I'll do is I'll rack to it, I'll put an airlock on it, and I'll have it somewhere where after that racking, I can easily transfer it to another vessel for bottling or bottle straight out of it, and I'll leave it there overnight or for 48 hours. As long as I can do it without getting in trouble with the wife, I'll do that. That works out really, really well, and it helps you bottle a very clear product. So anyway, hope that one helps. Don't worry about it. It's probably a little bit of a fungus, um, something fairly benign, and it may not even be that. It may just sometimes you get that little gray haze on the top of different fermentations, and it's not really a big deal. It's a yeast Uh, it could be a wild yeast, but it doesn't have, the thing is, because it came in at the end, it doesn't have much to work with. That's why it's not doing anything. It's just kind of sitting there. So I'd try to maybe go ahead and rack off of that um, and, and, you know, let that last little bit, that angel share go, and then uh, and then bottle in a day or two. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from California, and I just have a quick comment about being a hero. I just want to remind everybody, don't be a hero. This weekend, we lost a friend of ours. Some people were breaking into his car. He ran outside, chased them down the street. They turned around and shot him. He's no longer with us. He left behind a wife and two children. If they're running, let them go. Don't be a hero. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's sad. That's what I talked about in the beginning, that we were going to have to you know, face this reality today and, and get a call like that from a listener. And I know who Ben is. He's he's been around our community for a long time. So my heart goes out to you and your friend's family, Ben. Um, I just want to kind of point out the reality, though. You look outside of your window, you see some people breaking into your vehicle. There's there's there was a group clearly, and, and generally criminals once they go into groups, they go beyond two, they go into threes and fours. You chase them down the road. What if they didn't have a gun? What if you caught up with them? What are you going to do? four-on-one, with people that, that clearly don't have your morals. Um, if someone was, you know, running down the road dragging a kid, then I'll risk my life. Because God knows what they're going to do with that kid. I don't know if you guys have seen recently, there's a very disturbing video of a mother and quite a overweight lady, and it's probably good she was in this instance, and her daughter are in a Uh, Dollar General, and this guy, 30-something, 31-year-old guy, uh, just grabs this 13-year-old little girl and tries to drag her out of the store. And the mother starts throwing crap at him and beating him, and, and, and then she just basically wraps her arms and legs around her daughter and goes dead weight, where you, you, you might be able to drag her, but you're not dragging the two of us. And he gives up and runs out the door. And unfortunately for him, he runs straight smack into an off-duty uh, police officer who throws his ass to the ground and, and arrests him. Um, I said on Facebook, it's a good thing I wasn't there because I might have put the guy's teeth through the back of his head using a curb outside because what, what, what are you doing? And I think so. There's, I think the whole don't be a hero thing is 
somewhat subjective. It's don't be a hero when it's not necessary. If I saw someone trying to abduct a child, um, right up to the point where I knew I couldn't stop it, and the only result would be my death, I would do everything I could to stop it. As long as there was any hope that I could save that child, that would be an instance. Now, you got my stereo out of my truck and you're running down the road with it, um, I got insurance for that. Because I'm not going to be able to apprehend you if you have backup. Um, pulling my gun and, and creating a deadly situation where one didn't have to exist is, is probably not a good idea. And the best case scenario is I end up in front of a district attorney who's deciding if my use of force was justifiable. In the worst case scenario, my family doesn't have me anymore. So I think we have to be very cautious in determining when something like this is going on how much intervention needs to occur. I'll, I'll relate another quick story about something like this. One night I was in a vehicle with my wife and two friends of ours, and the friend is the kind of guy that's going to save the world. Some of you even know his name, but I'm going to leave his name out of this. Um, but he's the kind of guy, if there's something wrong, he's going to run headlong into it, and he lives for being able to render medical aid or, or physical aid or, or what have you. And we're driving down the highway in a vehicle. We're doing about 75, and it's like a 65, right? So we're about 10 over like everybody is. A vehicle comes, and this is a very crowded, very active highway. It's that, that dusk where it's just getting dark. And this vehicle had to be doing 110 to 120 miles an hour. And it's not like a sports car that it's even designed to do this. This is like some puddle jumper. And uh, I'm like, he's going to end up in a wreck. It wasn't a minute past that that we came by that car, crashed into the center median, median of the highway, and the driver clearly was laid out on the horn because the horn was just sounding. And I look at my friend, and what he wants to do is stop and help this person. I picked up my phone and called 911. The risk on that roadway without having and, and we had, I mean we went by like it was like we we've had to travel several hundred yards the wrong way down the highway to try to save someone that was behaving like an ass was was unacceptable for me had it just been me and him I may have taken the risk but my wife and his wife were with us and as the driver I made a decision that's not going to happen and it was probably unnecessary but I called 911 I'm sure many other people had by then there's a fire station and paramedic station less than a quarter mile from there I I'd love to have been able to say you know we did something and even though the guy was an idiot we saved his life but at that point my wife and his wife's life were more important And instead of having one of us in a wheelchair for the rest of our lives after being hit by a car or worse, you know, there is a point where you've behaved like an idiot and there is a consequence for that. And I'm only so willing to risk myself to save you. Now, there's other situations where I've stopped for wrecks because it was possible and, and you had the ability to do it in a way that maybe wasn't 100% safe but wasn't very high risk. This would have been extensively, extensively high risk had we stopped. There was a very good chance that one of us would have been injured, that our vehicle would have been damaged, or worse. And so even when it's not about being shot at, there's times that you take calculated risks to render aid, and there's times where you call in others to provide assistance and help. Um, 
just the, the concept that you're always going to be the one needs to be balanced with the reality that there are people that need you more. There are people that need you more than need your stereo, and there are people that need you more than a person who's decided to behave like an ass and has gotten themselves into trouble needs you. My wife needs me more than somebody behaving like an ass. And that's a harsh reality. Um, and many people are unwilling to say these types of things because, oh, we're supposed to help everybody every time we can. And we're supposed to be, you know, man up every time we can and go and fight, right? Well, Lao Tzu in The Art of War says we never fight a war and we never fight a battle unless we're sure of victory. We choose the time of our fight. We can't always do that, but when we can, we should. And we should decide whether or not the battle is worth the potential for the loss. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Neil in Tennessee. And I was calling to ask you a question about safe storing of guns uh, around children. Uh, background, uh, I've uh, been around guns my whole life, and I've taken uh, many, many training courses in carbine, shotgun, uh, pistol, hunted, all that kind of stuff. Okay, and um, but since I've gotten older and I've taken more tactical training, I've always got a shotgun by my bed, my pistol by my bed, just in case nothing happens. Uh, but now that I have children, I've been maneuvering these things away, putting them in safes. But I still have some that are accessible, uh, keeping uh, keeping one on top of my refrigerator and keeping a shotgun on top of the shelf in the closet. Um, you know. It, it, in your opinion, are, are these things okay? Are these becoming, you know, is this unsafe to have around children that are uh, too young to understand what the difference is between something that's real and something that's fake or just what it is to begin with? Um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, I, I, I don't think that locking a gun up uh, is a good idea if somebody's uh, kicking your door at 2 in the morning. You know, you're groggy and you don't know what's going on. I think you need to be able to. To, to get you a firearm. So uh, just some thoughts about that. Uh, thanks again for your show. This is a, a fundamental reality that when you bring something dangerous into your home, whether it's a gun, whether it's a knife, whether it's an animal, and you introduce children into that, you have to make determinations based on your house, how you run it, your children, their age, their capabilities, their willingness to be trained, their willingness to listen. And you have to make all of those determinations for yourself. Here's a couple ways that I feel about this. Um, number one, the majority of your guns should be somewhere securely locked. Okay? Just, that's how it should be. Um, the majority of your guns should not have ammo in them or with them. The, the ammo should be so stored separately and it should be locked. You know, even even something as simple as if you have a locked uh, closet that you keep guns in and you have a locked um, uh, foot locker that you keep your ammo in. And then that way the two are, even if they're together, there, there's a second lock to get to the ammo. This solves a lot of problems right away. The, the, and I think most gun owners realize if you have kids around having your, you know, your rifle leaning up against the wall out in the, in the living room is probably a bad idea. That said, my approach with my son, now understand that when I came into his life, he was already seven years old. There is a big difference between a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. A big difference was to immediately be, make him a young gun owner. And we went out and got a BB gun, a Daisy 105 PAL. Um, 
And, you know, it's the most innocuous, uh, you know, simple, safe little BB gun you could ever put in the hands of a kid. But I, as I've said on yesterday's show, I made him treat it like it's a 3006. You know, I said, you have to accept that in some weird freak way that you could shoot somebody with this and it could kill them. It's a billion to one, but it could happen. So we just don't want to be shooting anybody with it. You can certainly lose an eye or cause somebody pain or hurt yourself, and we don't want to do that. So we learned everything about gun safety, including how to cross a fence with a gun, how not to muzzle somebody, how to make sure a gun's clear, everything. And we had an understanding that my guns are not your toys. And, and, and we reinforced that so that I wasn't really worried about him going in and getting my guns. And I knew that I was dealing with a kid who got it. And when you talk to a kid about not doing something or doing something as an adult, you come up with one of three conclusions at the end of that. That went in and the child has it. This freaking kid's going to do this anyway, or I don't know. And I think if you're anywhere close from it went in to the I don't know, you have to err to stream to the side of caution. And I can't tell you how to manage your children, and I don't suppose that I can. But... My basic solution is make sure all the guns are secure, except those that you have for defense. A gun that's for defense, that's not loaded, and not reasonably quickly accessible is completely useless at the time that you need it. So we are stuck with this quandary. Here's my belief, though. The best thing for you, for home defense, in an invasion scenario, in some weird person at the door something going on that you need to be able to access quick is a handgun, not a shotgun. It's absolutely not a shotgun. Because I can answer the door when something doesn't look right with a handgun and have that person not know I'm armed. But if I have a shotgun, it's pretty obvious. All right. I'm not saying a shotgun's not a decent home defense tool. I'm saying if i got to pick between the two, a good handgun is more flexible. It's less likely if you're coming around from concealment that somebody can grab the barrel. There's just a lot going on with a handgun. And if you know some basic defensive techniques, like not extending like your freaking police officer and keeping the gun back against your body, if someone attacks you, you can shoot them before they get to you or even while they're on you. Okay? And, and a shotgun is not so much. So, you gotta decide what you're gonna do with your shotgun. But this is what I'll tell you to do with your handgun. Have a concealed carry permit. Carry your freaking gun. And if your gun is on your person, your kid's not going to play with it. And then if you want to put it in the nightstand or under the mattress when you're sleeping, you take your gun off at night and you put it there and you're sleeping on top of it. You're there. You're paying attention. You're not outside mowing the grass with your loaded .45 stuck under the mattress and your kid knows you keep it there. Or doesn't even know you keep it there, but he's wondering what his dad got. I think the biggest dangers happen in families where the children are isolated from the fact that dad has a gun. This is often with the reluctant mom that's that's... Doesn't freaking think. That's the nicest way I can put it. I don't want anybody to know that we have a gun and they're dangerous and I don't like them. And oh, he could be injured for life if he just saw it. That kind of crap. And the guy's like, yeah, well, I'm going to defend the house. So the child doesn't have an interaction with the gun. Dad keeps the gun in a drawer or something. One way or another, the kid finds out that dad has a gun. Kids are interested in what they what they don't have access to, what they can't see, what's kept from them. It's like. The curiosity killing the cat. 
And next thing you know, you got a kid with his friend, go, let me show you something. My dad has a gun. That type of thing. Where if the gun is accessible under supervision at just about any time the kid could ever want to see it, these problems don't happen. Because the kid's not like, oh, we got to sneak in and see my dad's gun. The kid's like, hey, if you come over, my dad will show you our guns. And there may be some times where you go, well, we don't need to do that with this person because the person's parents are weird or something. But it's this, this attempt to hide and conceal. So these are where the guns are. They're locked up. You don't touch them, but when you want to know about them, when you want to shoot them, when you want to do whatever is reasonable for your age, you let me know and we'll do it together. And this is safety and we're going to ingrain this in you. In those types of households, you generally don't have problems. You don't have accidents. And by isolating ammo from gun and being compulsive with clearing the gun to the point of it being ridiculous, accidents do not happen. Now, I'll tell you that I grew up in a different environment in a different time. When you walked in my grandparents' house, there was a gun cabinet in the basic, like the, the, the sitting room, they called it. It wasn't really a living room because there was no TV. There was another room with a TV, and you walked through this room, and there's some couches and chairs and some books and stuff like that, and people would sit and visit there. And there's a big gun cabinet in the corner, rifles, shotguns, a couple handguns hung up. And from the time I was probably six years old, if I wanted to take a gun out of the cabinet, clean it, I was welcome to do so. But I was, it was ingrained on me, and the ammo wasn't there. The ammo wasn't there. And I'll tell you, I, I differed from my family in that it was a program gun family, but guns really for, were for target shooting and hunting. And, yeah, if there's ever a problem, they're there to rely on for defense. But it, it wasn't the concept that you kept a gun, like, under your bed or on your person or carried. Um, I got into that mindset after I got out of the military. And uh, so I didn't grow up with that. But that's been my view, that my handgun never posed any threat to my child because it was on my person, and if it was not with me, there's no reason for it to be loaded. There's no reason, because if it's not readily accessible to me, then the fact that it's loaded doesn't really help me. So if I did need to disarm long-term, I would put it somewhere where it was locked up. A handgun case that uses fingerprint recognition is good security if you feel that you need it. But again, mine, gun on the body, gun off the body, gun somewhere around you at night when you sleep. You wake up, you get dressed, your gun goes back on you. Kid's not playing with it. Shotgun, I think you got to think about your individual situation. And since I don't know exactly what it is, I don't know what it is, but you need to make sure that that's not accessible to your children and that your children are trained with respect and reverence for guns and have an understanding that when they're curious, all they have to do is come to you and you will show them, you will talk to them, you will teach them, you will keep them safe. And if you condition them that way, that's how you end up. If you condition them with, oh, you just stay away from dad's guns, never look at them, never ask about them, never talk about them, you create an air of mystery And you create a greater propensity for problems. And if they think all the guns live in the, in, the, in the safe, and you just don't go into Dad's room without Dad, then that helps out a lot, too. Anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I was wondering if you had any advice on what type of lawnmower I should buy for my homestead. We are closing on a four-acre property in central Florida this month that is currently mostly grass 
Long term, I'm pretty sure I'll use animals to manage at least three of the acres, but I'll need to start mowing all of it in the beginning. So big goal is going to be building soil throughout the property. My initial research points me to getting a zero-turn riding mower with about a 50-inch cutting width. Since they're faster, you can pull a utility trailer. trailer. I can get a Toral time cutter for around 2700 And that's probably what I'll do, but where I get stuck a bit is when I look at some of the mowers that can power attachments, like dozer blade or loader bucket. And my main use case for things like that would be to be able to spread compost or wood chips for larger areas of land to help with building soil. The nice option seems to be the walker mowers, but they start around 8,000 new, so that's a big stretch for these functions. So, like I said, I'm leaning towards not trying to get the attachments, but I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on them or any knowledge of less expensive options. A big reason to not use a machine is that I'll get more exercise. I don't think I'll end up doing the same amount of work that I would do with the machine. So, thanks so much for the show and all you do. Bye. Uh, whether or not you should do a zero turn or more of a conventional lawn tractor, I'm not really sure. I'll leave that to you. But I'll tell you that the Toros, the John Deere's, the Husqvarna's, they're all damn good. They're, they're all very good at what they're designed to do. They're, they're, the, the, the differences between them are nowhere near as big as the marketing makes them out to be. Um, they're well put together pieces of equipment. All of them sooner or later have problems. Um, you know, I have a Husqvarna. I've got a starter motor problem with the Bendix not engaging, and sometimes it starts and sometimes it doesn't. And it's just one of those pain-in-the-ass things that since it's still mostly time works, I haven't fixed it yet. Um, there's always going to be something like that. The big thing on them is oil changes, making sure you grease the fittings, stuff like that, and they'll last you a plenty long time. And I'm going to steer you toward making that kind of a basic lawn tractor choice at this point, and this is why. You are absolutely going to use it. You, 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 there's no doubt about whether or not you need this or not. You got four acres of grass. Um, even if you're managing it with livestock, you're gonna be mowing. Um, there's times, you know, all the time we have a, a large duck and small goose flock here, and certain areas they just don't graze the way that we prefer that they do, and it needs to be mowed. And then that vehicle being able to pull a trailer does so much for you. And I have a suggestion with trailer. Um, you might consider home building one. I have one that's built with golf cart tires. It is so much better than utility carts. And my little Husqvarna tractor can tow anything that thing can carry. I'll have to show you guys a, a little video of it someday. It's a pretty cool little cart. And it's basically a steel frame with some golf cart tires on it. And the tires that come on those utility carts are shit. And a place that you may be able to get... Now, these are nice golf cart tires on this one. But you, what you might want to do is... A lot of times these places that sell golf carts and small trailers and stuff like that, those trailers and golf carts come with little, but they're like, you know, four-ply tires. They're good tires. They're small. But they're much better than the stuff that you get um, from, like, Home Depot and Lowe's or to come on those carts and stuff like that. And a lot of times they'll give you the damn things. Because what they do, they, the vehicles come in with that, like, stock tire, and they pull them off, and then they put the custom wheels or whatever it is they're selling on them, and they either sell them stupid cheap or they'll give them to you. And you need two to build a, a trailer, maybe four if you want to build a trailer that sits level without being attached to the tractor. And uh, you might consider building your own trailer because that's one of the places where building something often does cost a lot less than buying it. Trailers are stupid expensive. And these, like, 17-cubic-foot metal ones, 
Um, we ended up, I have one, and what I had to do was I had to pull the wheels that came with it off and gave up on trying to fix them. I couldn't find anything that went on those little bitty axles that really was any better. And they make a solid rubber tire. There's no tube that can slide on those things, and they're expensive. They're like 60 bucks a piece. But I put them on there because I got tired of the damn thing being flat. And then we got the the home-built trailer done, and it's it's pretty badass. It really is, and it really needs new plywood put on it now, but it, that's not a big job. And uh, it can it can haul anything that the, the tractor would be capable of pulling, so I think that. Now, the whole thing with front-end loaders and attachments and PTOs and all that stuff, I love equipment like that. I love the diversity that it can give you. But you, here's the reality. At this point, you don't know what you're going to do, and you don't know what your opportunities are going to be. Spread and mulch, okay? Um, where's it going to come from? How much is there going to be at any one time? I mean, if you run into figuring out that you can find the local tree trimmers and these guys can bring you truckloads of it, well, then you can look at getting the front end loader. But you don't know if that's going to happen right now. You're going to get livestock. Please listen to my show on homesteading that I did on Tuesday this week, and don't go too fast and take your time and ease into this. Four acres can wear your ass out and make you hate yourself if you're not careful. Ease into this. You've got time. And let's say that you're just living there for a few weeks or months or something like that, and you go down the road and there's a big long line of splendid trucks, and they're just cutting all that stuff, and you go talk to the foreman and he says, well, shit, boy, hell yeah, we can give you this. And they dump 50 yards of wood chips on your property. Glory, hallelujah. Now I wish I had that front end loader. Go down to a local equipment company and you can generally rent a Bobcat for about 150 to $200 a day. About $600 a week. And how long do you need a bobcat to move that much? By the way, those bobcats generally have about a half-yard bucket on them, which means 50 yards of wood chips right, is 100 bucket loads. And they're fast and maneuverable, and they're way better than a tractor for that use. And I'm just saying that until you know you're going when you find yourself thinking the third time this year, I should rent a bobcat again, start thinking about getting a front-end loader. And I'll tell you, we think about it here all the time, all the time. And I vacillate myself. I have found, uh, uh, it's a Chinese-made tractor. Uh, I think it's called a, a YNM, or Japanese-made. It's one or the other. Um, and you can buy, like, a brand-new one. This really isn't a cutting tractor, but it's front-end loader. You can put a mower deck on it. You've got a PTO everything, but a brand-new one with the front-end loader for eight grand. And with my duck holding area, I'm like, if I had it, about four times a year, I could completely clean that out and spread that stuff and then have a, a dump truck load of 12 yards brought in from the place down the road, and it would make my life so much easier. But you know what I've done for now? I go get it myself. It takes me 15 minutes to go get a load of wood chips. And I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can get one on Harbor Freight. It's not an affiliate link or anything like that, like Amazon, just so you know where it is. I got me this thing. It bolts on the tailgate. It's a, a big tarp. You, you pull it out in your truck. They put the wood chips on it, and you pull your truck where you want it to go, and you just start turning this crank, and it pulls the stuff out. And basically, I'm either dumping it where it's going, or I have a wheelbarrow there, and I'm dumping it in the wheelbarrow and taking dumping it. And for now, that thing was 100 bucks. I think it was like 80 bucks. Um, versus eight grand on a piece of equipment, it's 
You know, and then if you did want that equipment to, to, to mow, you got to buy a mower deck for it. If you want it to run a chipper shredder, you got to buy that for it. And you know, there's a lot of utility you get out of these pieces of equipment. But as a small homesteader, I say ease into things and buy what you know you're going to need. And here's the beauty of it: you buy that zero turn mower, and a year from now you decide, well, I want to go to like an all in one. Well, what you do is you decide to make your new purchase and you sell your zero turn, and you can probably get. 60% to 70% of what you paid for it back, or you keep it, you buy your new piece of equipment without the mower deck and use it for other things, and you ever decide if you want a mower deck for it, you get a motor deck for it. And now you got two as one and one as none. So stick with what you know you're going to need and you know you're going to use up front, and go slow and ease into this life as a new homesteader. Hey, Jack, Jake Robinson. Hey, I just listened to your latest podcast and your comments about uh, Muhammad Ali. There's one more thing you can add to it. He was not a draft dodger. He was a conscientious objector. He didn't cross over into Canada and, uh, you know, hide out somewhere and burn his draft car. He went to jail. He lost his uh, license to, to box. And some, I mean, he paid the price for it. So I think you can that out that most draft dodgers didn't have the guts to do what he did, which was conscientious objector. Injector status. So anyway, that's just my comment on that. Have a great day. Uh, that, that's a great point uh, that Jake makes there. I do want to correct one thing, just in the name of being technically accurate. Uh, I'm sure Ali spent a little bit of time in jail, but it was like jail, like where you know you you get, get taken in, they book you, and then you get out on bail or or what or bond or whatever. He never actually served any time for the offense of draft dodging or uh, draft evasion, I think, is exactly what he was charged with. He was convicted in court, and he was sentenced to five years in uh, in prison, federal prison, because a federal crime. There's no parole in federal prison, guys. You don't get out early. Um, so Or no probation. You, know, you, you serve your time to the end in fed, and uh, $10,000 fine which he never served a day of and he never paid a dime of, not because he you know, was given special treatment, because he appealed it and appealed it and appealed it, and eventually as things began to wind down in the 1970s and realized we're not going to be doing this anymore, um, eventually I, I think the government just kind of backed off and, and wanted it all to go away, not all Muhammad Ali, the whole Vietnam thing. You know by 1971-72 the government just wanted it to go away. They realized what a terrible, terrible idea it was, the whole damn thing. Um, but the, I guess the place I would take exception is, while I do think it's honorable that Ali stood and said, I'm not going, this is against my religious beliefs, there's no reason for me to do this, he was a public figure and doing what a lot of other people did probably wasn't really an option for him, and I still have no problem with people that you would call draft dodgers in Vietnam because... I'm willing to use hindsight and go, you know what, they were right. Now, maybe some of them weren't right for the sake of right. Maybe some of them were just afraid. They didn't want to go to war and they were afraid to die. That's called human nature. That's called self-preservation. And as we talked about earlier, if you want me to risk my life, there's a couple things that have to be true. One, I have to believe that what I'm doing is noble. And two, I have to believe there's at least a chance for success. And I believe if, if you looked without the blindness of patriotism and programming in the 1960s at Vietnam, 
you weren't real sure about it being noble, and you were pretty damn sure there wasn't much of a chance for success. But that's not how most people saw it, because they were programmed to believe, they were programmed to receive, right? And so fervor and patriotism and, and the war drum beating, and you're going to be a hero like your, your dad or your uncle that served in World War II, It was fresh on our minds, and we had just forgotten about Korea like it was some little, and we, we just basically claimed it was a victory. Um, and a lot of young men were willing to serve, but I think that many that were willing to serve, and even some that are quite proud of it today, if they really thought about it, would have realized it would have been better that they had not. I mean, it makes me think of the old question, what if they threw a war and no one showed up? And I have to tell you that, again, as I said, when I was 18, 19 years old, if I was 20 years older, right? If I, if I had been a teenager in the 60s, I would have joined. That was my mentality. Um, today, I wouldn't. Today, I wouldn't. Um, if you want me to pick up a gun and kill somebody... I have to feel that there's a reason for it, that it's worth taking a life. And if you want me to risk my life, I have to feel that there's a reason for that as well. You have to convince me on both sides. And damn it, why don't why doesn't everybody think that way? Just because our nation decides we want to kill somebody, it's 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 it, we're right. In the words of Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, the people over there didn't do nothing to me. And I know it's not a popular thing to be anti-war. But I'll just say what I've always said. Number one, if you ain't anti-war, you're pro-war. And I'd like to read a quote for you before we go to the next one right now. Because I know when you say, you know, what if you threw a war and no one showed up, people think that's pie-in-the-sky hippie talk. So here's, uh, here's the quote I want to read for you today. I like to believe that people in the long run are going to do more to promote peace than our government's. Indeed, I think that people want peace so much that one day, these one of these days, governments had better get out of the way and let them have it. What hippie said that? The same one that said, I hate war is only a soldier who has lived it can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity can. Dwight David Eisenhower. With that, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Dave, and I have a question about rotating long-term storage food. I've been adding to my long-term food storage a little at a time by buying things as finances allow. Some of these items are packets that have seven-year shelf lives, and others are number 10 cans that have 30-year shelf lives. My question is, do you think I should be rotating these out well before the expiration dates? My thinking is that there must be some sort of taste or nutritional degradation as time goes on. Given that the printed shelf life is so long, Maybe I'm mistaken. I don't mind rotating them, as I only buy products that I use at least somewhat regularly, but I'm wondering how on top of this you think I should be. Thanks a lot. Okay, so let's start out with a fundamental fact and reality. No matter what the expiration date is on food, unless it's something like milk, and even that's true with that, but you, you get to the uh, too late a lot quicker with it, and you know that because you smell it, um... 
Whatever that date is, you can bet that that food is safe beyond that date. There is a major CYA factor in every expiration date on everything. And CYA for the people that have been living under rock for the last 30 years to be cover your ass. In fact, there are things that really don't need to have uh, an expiration date on them, but thanks to New Jersey, everything does, like water. Um, if you notice, water has an expiration date, and it's not that far out. It's usually two years is what water manufacturers have decided to settle on just because they pulled an arbitrary number out of their ass, and they'd rather have you buy more water and figure you won't be that upset having to dump it out. Well, this all started when New Jersey passed a state law that said any and all items that are for consumption must have an expiration date to be sold in the state of New Jersey. And the water people are like, really? And the Jersey people are like, yeah, really? Okay, so we'll screw it. We just slap a date on there, fine. And uh, so you don't just do that to sell in Jersey, so all of a sudden everything everywhere, thanks to New Jersey, has an expiration date. Because if you think your water goes bad, well, you don't understand how water works. Um, and it kind of makes me sad because whenever I go to this facility I talked about to get wood chips that's down the road here, they're a licensed recycler, and, and, and they're crushing uh, tons of bottles, water bottles and beer, and they're using those in the composting process because that product can't be sold once it reaches that arbitrary expiration date. So that tells you how I feel about the issue on a whole. Let's separate it into two things. You have stuff with a seven-year shelf life. I wish you would have told me what that was. Because I don't really know what has a seven-year shelf life that we buy in a store that's on it. I mean, maybe spam, uh, things like that, I guess. Um, that stuff's going to be fine beyond that date. So well before, not so much worried about. However, food, in just about all forms, does undergo basically a nutrient, a textural, and a flavoral breakdown over time. So if these are items that you would use anyway, the, the more rotation you can put into them, the better. Okay, So that's everything but your number 10 cans. We're going to get to those in a second with your 30-year your shelf lives. Um, so if you can rotate food, I think it always makes sense to rotate food. It keeps you in touch with what's in your storage. It keeps you using it. It's eat what you store, store what you eat. That's what I've been preaching for almost eight years uh, now. So yes, rotate it, but don't get your panties in a wad if you're you know uh, six months away from your expiration date you still have a can of something just don't okay your 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 30 year storables that stuff's freeze dried it's freeze dried and it's in a vacuum sealed can it you could die your kids could be an old man and open that it probably tastes not much different um, it's almost infinitely storable it really is as long as it's not a really hot location. Uh, or somewhere where the can's going to be compromised in its storage capacity. Um, so use that when and if you feel like it, but don't really sweat that one much at all. I do think maybe having like a 10-year rotational cycle, some of that stuff makes a lot of sense. Uh, have a big cookout, share preparedness with people, something like that, restock in waves of it or what have you. But the whole point of that stuff, that's in that, see, that's the purpose of that type of food. That's your, that's your Roth IRA money if we compare it to retirement. So here's what I mean. Your food storage is like your Social Security, your basic everyday eat what you store and store what you eat. Assuming the government doesn't blow it up, and they sooner or later will, but while it's there, the day you retire, you start collecting and using Social Security. You just start using it. If you have something like a conventional IRA or something like that, you begin to draw from that, 
And that's your intermediate storage. That's your, your, your five year, your canned stuff. That's your, your deep pantry with your long term storables. And then your Roth IRA, because that money can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and because you can never be taxed on it, that's the last money you take. So it has the largest amount of time to accumulate before you begin to take away from it. That's how we look at our storage, our, our, our regular storage stuff that we store every day, that we use every day, that we're rotating. It's probably never in our, our pantry for more than four to six months before it's been rotated out. Some of it's only there for four to six weeks before it's rotated out. That's like our immediate draw. That's like our salary, but we're keeping some money in a savings account. And then we have that intermediate, and that's like that's like with our private retirement account. And then we have that long-term stuff. That's just there in case we need it. We'll, we'll get to that when we need it. And I think that's a great way to think about it. Uh, great question, though, because uh, it's something a lot of people are concerned about. Let's go ahead and take one more today. This is a rather long one, but because I know this person and because it's a really interesting way to look at things, I went ahead and allowed it to be this long. Hey, Jack. I just sent you um, a quick post on Facebook, and I, when I sent you the post, I said, Jack, I'm going to call the think line about this here Facebook post. It's an article um, called Filthy Rich Kids Share What Crazy Things They Always Thought Were the Norm. And these are some very candid and honest confessions by very rich kids who um, grew up not realizing how rich they were. Uh, this is not bashing of rich people or rich children. This is more uh, pointing that some of these kids are just clueless. Now, I personally was a full-time live-in nanny on the North Shore of Long Island for a number of years for several different wealthy families. That included driving the children to school, driving them to the country club for their tennis lessons, driving them to the play dates at other very wealthy houses. A couple of those wealthy houses were literal mansions. I drove these children for play dates at actual mansions with full-time staff. So I've seen this lifestyle. Really wealthy kids just don't know how rich they are. And then when they do find out how rich they are, they're very embarrassed about it and they feel very awkward. I think this is a very telling article. I think it's a very honest article. You might want to read a couple of these testimonies out loud from, that some of these rich kids confessed to as far as those dawning moments of reality when they found out the horrible truth of just how rich they were. And my own observation when I lived in Long Island and I was interacting with these rich people was the kids who had it together had, I'm going to say, normal parents who had a grasp themselves of real life. And the most together kids were the ones who went on for really real camping trips with their parents. They were intense. They had to cook out on an open fire. They had to wash their laundry in the river. Parents made their kids do it. Some of them broke down and got an actual cabin, and others did the real tent thing. That was the most in touch with their basic human interaction with real life. Not real life as in modern society, but real life as far as you have to feed yourself, you have to clothe yourself, you have to clean up and keep the critters away. And these kids had a grasp. And then when they went to college, they didn't have these horrible experiences like what we see some of these kids confessing, the horrible experiences of not realizing, oh my, we don't have maids and chauffeurs in college. Oh dear. Anyway, something for the show. Thanks, Jack. Talk, talk to you again. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to read from that article. I will link to it, but I'm going to warn you if you click on the link. It's one of these friggin' sites 
where there's so much advertising crap and so much stuff going around in the background, and all of a sudden stuff starts coming out of your speakers and some crap's auto-playing, and it, and you try to forward to the next one, and then it freezes. It's just a pain in there. It's one of those overloaded with adware sites, but I'm going to put a link anywhere if you want to read it. I will tell you some of the types of things that these kids were saying. One of the first ones was a little bit benign. It was kind of like... This girl said she never realized that any you could ever see anybody's refrigerator, that it didn't just look like cabinetry. She'd never seen a metal refrigerator before, and she thought it was weird. And then she was a little jealous when she realized you could put magnets on it. Uh, kids that never understood that anybody you know lived in a small house. And one kid that was like totally blown away when they were like about seven years old, they went to play at a friend's house because their house was so small, and it was like a a three two, you know, a standard American dream home. Uh, because they lived in a mansion their whole life and what have you. Th th these types of things. Uh, uh, not understanding why people complained about airports because they just got on a private plane. They didn't own one, but their friends had one, or they would just privately charter, and you just get on the plane and leave. Why would anybody go two hours early to the airport? Another kid, um, wasn't so much a kid telling a story, as a parent telling a story, that the kid was at school and had been sent to school with a lunch. And... Um, He wasn't eating, and the teachers are worried, so the parents come in to see what the kid's doing. The kid's happy as shit, sitting there with their food, and this kid's five years old going to kindergarten and never fed himself. Had literally been fed by a servant like a child, like a baby. Things like that. Um, one said that it was something like, didn't understand that people actually would use a, a regular vacuum cleaner or whatever. They had holes all over their house, like under cabinets and stuff, and you just swept dirt up and you popped a hole open, and there was like a, a central vacuum system in the house that just vacuumed up dirt and didn't understand that people wouldn't have that or, or what have you. One said they played in uh, his his uh, his dad's, his friend's dad's Ferrari F40, like it was a, 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 like a, a fort, you know, for kids to play in or something like that. I don't know if you guys know what an F40 is, but it's about a two hundred and something thousand dollar car. Twenty five years ago, when it first came, thirty years ago, when it first came out, it was one of the fastest cars on the road at the time. One of the first cars you could just buy and, and leave the dealership with and break two hundred miles an hour with. Um, this type of stuff. And boy, I know, I know, there's a lot of people out there. Jeez, these kids are so small and blah. Hey, knowing what the real life's like. Hold on a second. H how do you think? Children growing up in Central Africa would view the average, well-adjusted American child as to what they expect to be normal. That you have a cell phone. Every kid has a cell phone today. You know, if kids are nine years old, they have cell phones. And have a cell phone with more computing power in it than put a man on the moon. They just expect that everybody lives in a house. Maybe not everybody live in a mansion, but everybody lives in a house. Everybody has a car. Mom, if you have mommy and a daddy, well, mommy and daddy both have a car. Some of these kids have never seen a car. This is a function of technology more than wealth. Many of the things we have in our standard, everyday American home that would be considered modest or beyond the wildest dreams of luxury 50 years ago, and certainly 100 years ago. While the, the wealthy a hundred years ago had big houses, they had nowhere near the convenience and luxury and lack of concern that we did. If you wanted something, even if you were rich, there was a certain matter of geography of obtaining it. There wasn't just a store on every other corner. 
And you can see this contrast, not just in wealth, but standard of living, based on the country's overall demographics, and in different parts of the country. I mean, compare how a, a middle-income family in Dallas, Texas, lives and how the children are brought up compared to a rural family in West Virginia. And this, indeed, is part of the teacup problem. It, it really is. Our kids have it so easy, and it's not that they have it easy, it's that they don't know the alternative. And then when they do find out the alternative, I notice how Lane called it a horrible experience. I don't know that's horrible, but they act as if it's horrible. That They're outraged that not everybody has what they have. Now, it's interesting that none of them ever want to give up what they have so that someone else can have it. Um, I, w I watched a, a thing where Dinesh D'Souza was giving a speech at a college in Columbia, and this child asked him, this man-child, right, like 20-year-old man-child, asked him about white privilege, right? It's interesting this kid was white and Dinesh isn't, but I'm just saying. Uh, and, you know, what should be done about inequality is very upset because Dinesh obviously is a right-wing figure and we should go to do more. And, and Dinesh says to him, why don't you give up your seat at Columbia so that a person of color can have it if you are so concerned about your white privilege? And, of course, the student didn't want to give up his space. He wanted space made for everybody else so that everybody can have the same thing. And this is the problem with people that are spoiled. They believe that since they're entitled to it, everybody's entitled to it. They don't realize they're not entitled to it either. That they're fortunate to have it. It's not privilege, it's earned. Somebody else earned it, whether it was your parents that worked their ass off, or their parents that worked their ass off, or their parents, your great-grandparents that worked their ass off. Somebody earned that status. It wasn't just given to them. It was just handed to them. Somebody earned that. Now, if you want to talk about the banking families or stuff, the money that's so old, it's it's 50 generations of wealth. The, the people of today are so disconnected with how that was made. No. But if you're talking about money that was earned in this country since its founding till now, the people that weren't just wealthy and came here and established banks and whatever, then it was earned. It was hard. It wasn't easy. And here's what I just bet. Elaine talks about the children that were made to go camping and things like that and learn about the real life. Most of those parents are what you would call in that uberly wealthy world new money. They're new. And actually, old money looks down at them at times, right? Because they still do things for themselves. Huh, it's so awful, right? And the, the, the closer you are to the parent that earned the money, the more realistic the outlook of the child they're raising. If the grandparents earn the money, the kid's got a chance. If the parents earn the money, the kid's going to be all right. But if the great-grandparents earn the money, the kid's almost always toast like this. Because the, 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 the grandparent grew up with it, but with some temperance. But then what do we do? We're so misguided. We, we believe the bullshit that comes out of our own mouth. I want my kids to have it easier than I did. And... I don't know, if you grew up like me, that can be kind of somewhat noble. I had it pretty hard, you know. I was pretty much on my own from the time I was 15. That's part of why I joined the Army at 17. Um, it, was, it was hard being a kid when I was a kid. Um, but I also look back at it and people go, well, do you wish it was different? And I think, no. Everything I have today is because I came through that struggle. And I was, I was willing to do anything 
to be successful. As long as it wasn't immoral, as long as I wasn't hurting anybody, I would do anything to move up just one level from where I was. And I really believe if I'd grown up kind of with the perfect family and everything being provided and everything being hunky-dory, I wouldn't have had that passion and that burn. So if you take away the struggles from your children and you're successful because you had struggles, you're taking away what gave you your success. You're killing them with kindness. The teacup kids, and like I said, I think the teacup kids are having children now. They're young adults. We have China plate children. I mean, they are just completely incapable of dealing with anything. The kids aren't different. The parents are. We did this to them. It's time we reinstill value and ethics and struggle in our kids' lives. Let them struggle. Let them do it themselves. On that note, if voting goes the way it is, I'll be doing a show next month called How to Raise Resilient Children in a World Full of Wusses, and I'll have more thoughts about that then. But thanks for that one, Elaine. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you, if you like this show and want to support the work we do, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, and become a member of the Support Brigade. I really appreciate it when you guys do that. It really is what does the majority of the support for me so I can continue to produce shows like today's for you. The survivalpodcast.com, again, click on Members to learn more. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Responders all qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join with TSPC service discount in the subject line. And, uh, and uh, send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Guys, it's a great deal. It pays for itself. You get discounts of stuff you're going to buy anyway. And you'll support the show at $0.18 cents an episode. If it's if it's worth $0.20 cents an episode to you, consider joining because that's what you'd be paying. Or 5 bucks a month if you want to do it monthly. The other way you can support us is real simple. Go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon. Uh, it doesn't take any extra work. It doesn't take any extra effort. And uh, at least the majority of things that you buy will get some credit for that. Sale on Amazon gets free advertising. Uh, I think it's the best win-win deal we've ever come up with. I'm kind of sad that I didn't come up with doing this like eight years ago when I started. It would have been a really great idea. You can't go backwards, though, only forwards. tspaz.com is your way forward to Amazon from now on. And right in line with yesterday's show, if you have not joined Granddaddy's Gun Club yet, please consider doing so. Just get on over to granddaddysgun.com and you can click on members and you can become a member there for free. And consider doing business with members of our business directory at tspbiz.com. Today's member of the business directory that is being featured on the show is Matthew Gleason, a realtor, an MSB member and long-term listener who operates as a realtor in northwest Nevada. As an audience member, Matthew will not look at you like you're a space alien if you say things like permaculture or walking to freedom when you're searching for home listings. You can check him out on the TSP Business Directory. Remember, doing business with each other is another way that we build a strong community and support each other in the work that we're all trying to do for more self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and independence in our own lives. Song of the day today. Um, not my favorite musician by a long shot. And uh, this is Redneck Country that I'm going to play today. Redneck Country. And uh guy had a few hits back in the 90s. His name's Aaron Tippin. And I mean, this is Redneck Country, sound-wise, anyway. But I thought this song would be an interesting one to put on today, considering the closing story today about the... uh the teacup uber-wealthy kids, and kids in general being told you don't want to get your hands dirty, you don't want to work too hard, you don't want to be sweaty, you don't want to be like that guy on the side of the road with a shovel, you, you want to go to college and get a good job with benefits where you sit in an office and the air conditioner all day long, separated from life and reality and the earth. That's, that's what you want. 
Well, I think we're reaching the end of that paradigm. I really do. I think we're having people of all walks of life, like, I think there's a a buyer's remorse that's holding it back that no one wants to admit that, yeah, I told my kids to go into all this debt. My grandkids are doing it now because I taught them. I don't want to admit that it's a mistake, but it's getting so glaringly obvious that it's a mistake that, that people are starting to admit that not everybody should go to college. I mean, as, as ridiculous as it is that we even have to have this discussion, people are starting to, to get that. People are starting to get that even if you do, that this concept that any kind of work that involves using your back or your hands or your arms and being outside and getting a little bit of sweat on yourself is uh, is somehow not noble, it, it's kind of foolish. I mean, I became really successful in corporate American sales, but the way I got there was through a position in, in doing work in an underground construction company, digging ditches and, and, and running heavy equipment and directional boring and stuff like that. Because I very quickly moved into a position basically as a company superintendent. They gave me supervisory experience. It gave me estimating experience. Uh, it gave me so much with project management and stuff like that that then I was able to springboard that into basically sales in a, in a structured cabling company. And that led me to become vice president of sales for Fluke Networks, where I was inside and, and with an expense account. And I became miserable eventually, but the ditch led there. Because I was willing to get in the ditch. So I talked about earlier, being willing to do anything. And this, this song's called Working Man's PhD. And thinking of teacup kids, see, that work in construction was my first encounter with the teacup generation. And these kids weren't much younger than me. I was like 22, 24 years old back then, right? And these guys working for me that were my age, a year or two older than me, some of them 10 years older than me, some of them, you know, young guys, 21 years old, first real job. And the weakness that some of these kids had. One was a guy named Ethan. I remember one day Ethan, is, he's talking to me. He goes, Jack, he goes, I think that all the guys hate me. I'm like, Ethan, everybody loves you, man. What's your problem? He goes, they're always, they're always ragging on me. They're always picking on me. What do you mean? Well, you know, they're like, they're giving me hell about this or, you know, they, they're messing with me about that. And I'm like, that's what guys do, dude. That's, that's what guys do. He's like, what? I'm like, it's a construction job, dude. You take the piss out of each other all the time. That's because you do dangerous work together and you try not to be too serious about it. You work hard for less than your worth, just like I do. You bust your ass, but you get the job done. You keep each other safe. And men in those environments, it's like being in the military. And he couldn't get it. And then there was another guy. Makes me think it from this song. Because this song was big back then. This was early, mid-90s. song comes on the radio and we're on lunch break. And it's got Thomas, who we'd recently hired. And he wasn't going to make it. I could tell I was going to fire him within a week, at least, at, at most. And I was trying to make him work. That's before I understood that when you know they're not going to work, you just get rid of them. He was lazy. He didn't want to do shit. He was always looking to take some time off. And he was always like, you know, you'd see him, you'd tell him to dig a hole, and he'd dig the hole, but then he wouldn't do anything else until somebody told him to do something again. And I think he was like 21 years old. And this song comes on, he goes, this song's about us. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, we work hard like this every day. I'm like, you think you work hard? This is where I knew I was going to fire him, right? I'm like, he actually thinks he works hard. But it's part of this whole teacup generation. And this is my point. That young man from back then is only like five years younger than me. He's 39 years old. He probably got a couple kids out there. He's trying to make their life easier than his. 
maybe as redneck country as this is, it's time to go back to the days of getting a working man's Ph.D. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Working